Our sermon text will be Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. And uh, before we have that reading, we'll pray. So please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once more for the gift of your word, the Holy Scriptures. We pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will help me when I speak. You will help us all as we hear. Father, that we would be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that understand and obey. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 10. Hear the word of God. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the, of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Amen, and may God bless his word to us. And if you're thinking it's kind of an arbitrary place to stop the reading, you're right, it is kind of an arbitrary place to stop the reading, but it's one sufficient for us to get a, um, a, good, a good heap of teaching out of, and two, I think you'll see my reason as we get closer to the end of the sermon. So Luke announced in that which we looked at last week, he announced his intention. It was to put together an orderly record of that which God paid for his people. An orderly account of the expense of salvation is another way of looking at it. His hope is that people reading his gospel would have certainty. So, Obviously, he asks himself the question, where do you start an orderly account? Where, how do you put this on paper? Where do you start the narrative? You start it at a certain place in a certain time, not once upon a time. If I tell you any story that begins with once upon a time, your, your mind should automatically go, okay, we're about to hear a fairy tale. A story, it might or might not have some kind of lesson, but it's not based in reality. But Luke sets his gospel in a time and in a place. God, as it were, was doing something about the real world. And he was doing something for real people in the real world. So you don't get the fairy tale beginning and once upon a time. You get a place. You get the time of a ruler. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. The days of Herod were probably from around about 75 BC to just before 1 or 2 BC, something like that. 
and we're probably looking at around about the end of his reign. Many feel you're looking at something like 4 or 5 BC. Herod, Herod the Great, he was called. As uh, we continue in the study of the Gospel of Luke, the Lord willing, we'll see that Herod the Great, though he was a powerful leader and though he was um, in many ways a vigorous leader, he was also a cruel and violent and paranoid man. He was not in any way afraid of using murder or death to gain his to gain his um, purposes, to gain his desires. He was willing to kill members of his own family. He was willing to kill anybody. He was willing to slaughter babies just in case, just in case a competing king had actually been born. That's the kind of man that we're looking at. He had been set in place by the Romans. He was not himself actually a Jew. He was an Edomite. He had been set in place by the Romans and with a Roman army, he had taken control of Judea, of Palestine. In those days, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Now, that's interesting. And I don't know if you realize just how interesting that is. Luke is not only placing this story of the Christ in Roman history, in Jewish history, he's placing it in biblical history. When he says of the division of, the, of Abijah, I want you to turn to First Chronicles chapter 24. And there we're going to read from verse 1. The divisions of the sons of Aaron were these. The sons of Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children, so Eleazar and Ithamar became the priests, with the help of Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar. David organised them according to the appointed duties in their service. Since more chief men were found among the sons of Eleazar than among the sons of Ithamar, they organised them under sixteen heads of fathers' houses of the sons of Eleazar and eight of the sons of Ithamar. They divided them by lot, all alike, for there were sacred officers and officers of God among both the sons of Eleazar and the sons of Ithamar. And the scribe, Shemaiah, the son of Nethanel, a Levite, recorded them in the presence of the king and the princes of Zadok, the priest, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, and the heads of the father's houses of the priests and of the Levites, one father's house being chosen for Eleazar and one for Ithamar. The first lot fell to Jehoiarib, the second lot to Jediah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Siorim, the fifth to Malchijah, the sixth to Majamin, the seventh to Hakoz, the eighth to Abijah, the ninth to Jeshua, the tenth to Shechaniah, the eleventh to Eliashib, the twelfth to Jakim, the thirteenth to Hapa, the fourteenth to Jeshabiab, the fifteenth to Bilgah, the 16th to Ima, the 17th to Hazia, the 18th to Hapizez, the 19th to Pethahiah, the 20th to Jehezkel, the 21st to Jachin, the 22nd to Gamal, the 23rd to Deliah, the 24th to Maziah. These had as their appointed duty in their service to come into the house of the Lord according to the procedure established for them by Aaron their father as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. So notice amongst that group, 
that one of the heads was called Abijah. One of the groups was called Abijah. So we've now had Zechariah placed in Jewish history. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was related in any way to Abijah. All of the heads of, I'm sorry, all of the priestly families did not return from the Babylonian captivity. But amongst the priests that did return, they did divide them up into 24 groups again, and they did appoint those groups the same names that had traditionally always been there. So Zechariah may or may not ever have been related to Abijah, but he was a descendant of Aaron and he was serving in the division of Abijah. So what does that mean? Well, at this time, it's estimated there were around about 18,000 priests in Israel, in Judea. Imagine the sons of Aaron multiply, multiply, multiply over the thousands of years, even though many are lost in the Babylonian captivity. Even so, many come back, multiply, multiply, multiply. There are about 18,000 people qualified to serve in the temple in the function of a priest. So how do they do it? Well, divided into their divisions. The divisions are further subdivided. And basically every one of the 18,000 got to spend two weeks of the year at the temple. You would come to the temple twice in a year and serve for one week. And that was how you fulfilled your priestly ministry. We'll see um, just a couple of verses on. We'll see how it comes to be that um, Zechariah was actually praying at the offering of incense. But we'll leave that for a bit later. Of the division of Abijah, I'll I'll just add one other little thing that I found interesting here. Now, you all know that I don't make an enormous song and dance about things like Christmas and Easter. And um, we can't be absolutely certain of the date of the birth of Jesus. But here's the thing. We know the dates in which these divisions served in the temple. And if the first thing that happened after Zechariah returned home was that Elizabeth conceived John the Baptist and you start to put all the chronology together, it's possible, it's possible that the Messiah, that the Christ was born sometime between what you would call the Western Christmas, which is the 25th of December, and the Eastern Orthodox Christmas, which by memory is the 12th of January. Sometime in those weeks, it's quite possible if everything happened according to that which is recorded both in the Bible and in histories like the history of Josephus, if everything happened in that way, it's quite possible that Jesus was born around about the time that we celebrate Christmas, which I found interesting. He was a priest of the division of Abijah, picking up the text, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, this is also important. He had a wife from a priestly family. The law permitted a descendant of Aaron to marry any Israelite girl. He could take a a wife from any family in Israel, provided that she was an Israelite, and the law specified that she must be a virgin, never having before been married. A priest could not marry a widow. For Aaron to be married to a daughter of a priestly family, you would say 
This family is doubly blessed, doubly sanctified, doubly set aside. But if we keep reading, we read at verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is good. This is what you want to hear. Anyone who's righteous before God is righteous because their sins are forgiven. They're righteous because they have faith. He's seen as being righteous. They are seen as being righteous because they're known to be a holy and sanctified couple. This is one of those older couples in the congregation that you look up to. This pair have been together for a lot of years. They're a godly, praying, believing couple. You respect them. But then let's read the next verse. Verse 7, but, but, you know what that means. You know, after every, after all the description thus far has been good, and then you get that word, but, you realize the next bit is going to be a problem. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. She was way past the age of childbearing, a bit like Sarah was when God promised Abraham that he would have a son. Way past the age of childbearing. And now I want you to look at a verse in, in uh, the book of Exodus. There's something about that that is significant to the Jewish mind. God speaking to his people through Moses. Verse 23, we'll start at. Which chapter? Exodus, sorry, chapter 23, verse 23. Exodus 23, 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. Verse 26. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Look carefully at that. The people are strictly warned not to practice any form of idolatry and that they must be willing to destroy idols and in that they will be blessed. Their bread and their water will be blessed. Sickness will be taken away from them and Wives will be fertile. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Okay, so now I want you to sort of get your mind into the position of Aaron and Elizabeth back amongst the people of God and ask yourself a question. Is everybody who gathers with the people of God a nice person? Is everybody who gathers with the people of God an understanding person, wise, discreet, gentle, a person who cares about your well-being and wants to uh, lift you up rather than break you down? I think you know what the answer is, and the answer is no. Have you ever heard, for example, now I'll jump back into our time, a Pentecostal accused someone who's dying of cancer of lacking the faith to be healed. 
You would have gotten over that if you only had the faith to claim the victory. Now let's go back. You've got it in Scripture. If you destroy the idols and don't bow down to any false gods, your bread and your water will be blessed and no wife will be barren. Elizabeth has had no children. What would be the conclusion of a hasty and unpleasant person? You know what the conclusion is going to be. They've got something against them. God knows the heart. God knows that they have in some way failed. God knows their moral failures. They don't have a child because God has not blessed them and God has a reason not to bless them. It's considered to be a reproach, an accusation, a reproach. When Elizabeth does become pregnant, she hides herself. Just jump forward to verse 25 of chapter 1 in in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. She felt it. She knew what was being said in the background. She was a failure as a woman. That's what was being said in the background. God had a reason not to bless their marriage. God had a reason not to bless her womb, to use a biblical phrase. She had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Moving on, Luke chapter 1 verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, okay, so it's one of those weeks when he's called into the temple to do his bit. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. If you don't realize that this is the highest day of his priestly career, this is it. He's advanced in years. He's probably been practicing as a priest from the day that he was legally allowed to, according to the law. And up until now, he's never done this. How do we know he's never done this? Because once he gets to do it in a priesthood of 18,000 members, he's no longer eligible to do it. So he could have been serving here for 50, 60 years, and he's never had this privilege. Luke, once again, places this in biblical history. I'll just read you a proverb, Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, when we think about the lot being cast, we think chance, dice, toss of a coin, all that kind of thing. But Luke's not thinking that way. Luke's saying, do you understand? God had planned this from before the beginning of time. This old guy who has no son because his wife is barren. This old guy who's a priest that has been allowed to come to the temple to serve twice a year for all of his priestly life, but has never had the privilege of making an offering. This old guy by lot from the Lord. He gets called up. I remember a guy from years ago when I was a child, my dad and one of my uncles had a friend. He was a professional rugby league player. But he wasn't a cream of the cream rugby league player. 
He was a certainly very good rugby league player. He was a competent player. Um, he played for a very, very strong team in the NRL competition of its day. I think in that day it was called the ARL, the Australian Rugby League. He played for a very, very strong club and he loved that club and that was the only club he wanted to play for. He would have been a regular first grader in just about any other club in the competition, but because he loved that club, he was happy to be a regular reserve grader for that club. Anyways, one year in the 70s, his club reached the grand final and he was actually one of the guys chosen to be on the reserve bench for the grand final. And in those days, and the rules are different now to what they were then, the guys on the reserve bench usually only got called into the game if someone was injured or failing badly. Otherwise, everyone tried to play the full 80 minutes. Well, it just so happened that around about 12 minutes into the second half, a player got injured and the coach pointed at him and said, you, you're on. Grand final, first grade grand final. I'm sure the thoughts that went through his head, his first name was John, were, John, this is the moment. Whatever you do, don't mess this up. You've played this game now since you were eight years old. You've plugged away in reserve grade for the last five years. Finally, you're playing a first grade game and you're in the grand final. Whatever you do, don't mess this up. And that's what this moment is like for Zechariah. It's the peak. It's the high moment. It's the one he'd hoped for for so many years. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And now I want to talk to us, talk to, talk about the old covenant religion of Israel. Where were the people? outside. The people could not enter into the temple. In this situation, Zechariah would enter with two other priests, very ceremonial. One would be carrying hot coals. One would be carrying the incense, which is like sort of a powdered mixture of herbs, etc., that was going to be thrown on the hot coals, which would then smoke up, bringing up a massive cloud of aromatic smoke the smoke being representative of the prayer of the people. And there were prayers that he was to say in the temple whilst that cloud of smoke was bursting, was, was rising up from the hot coals. He was to be praying for the nation, interceding for the tribes, etc., etc. That's the situation that he was walking into. But the people were outside, separated. The people did not come into the presence of God. They did not come into the household of God. Now, what's the gospel all about? You know, it's, it's made even more clear in the gospel of Mark, if any of you remember back a few years ago when we went through the gospel of Mark. 
What happened when Jesus died in the Gospel of Mark? What's one of the things that Mark records? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The way into the holy place was made open. Just the holy place itself, if you uh, trace it through scripture, it kept growing. The holy, the holy place in the tabernacle in the desert was a perfect cube. It was only just large enough for the Ark of the Covenant and the statues of the angels and for the priest to enter in and to do his ministry. The holy place in the temple that was built by King Solomon was much larger. The temple that was built by King Solomon was large and glorious. It was enormous. It was still a cube. It was a cubed room, large, enormous. The temple built by King Solomon was burnt down. It was start, It was uh, rebuilt, commencing at the time of um, Nehemiah and Ezra and was rebuilt over many, many years, decades. The holy place was, once again, as far as we can tell, the same dimensions as the holy place was in the, in, in the uh, temple built by Solomon. But when we, if we were to turn to the book of Revelation, we would see that the city of God descends to earth from the heavens. Don't want to argue about whether it's a literal city descending or not. Just want to talk about the most interesting thing of it, to my mind at least. What is it? It's a cube. It's a 1,280-mile cube. That's enormous. I mean, that's insanely enormous. If the corner was here, the northernmost corner would be further north than Brisbane. The westernmost corner would be further west than Adelaide. The north, the northwest corner would be practically sitting up at, you know, in the middle of the desert getting towards Darwin. It's a cube. And it's the same height as it is as it is uh, distance along, as it is distance across. It's a cube. Like what? Like the holy place. Why would it be so huge? Why would it be enormous, big enough to fit billions of people into if they were standing shoulder to shoulder? Well, the priesthood has changed, hasn't it? The relationship of God's people to God has been changed. No one could enter into the holy place of the tabernacle except the priest, and that only at the appointed, the appointed times, having made the necessary sacrifices, first on behalf of his own sins, in order that he may offer then sacrifices on behalf of others. No one was allowed into it. It didn't need to be a big room. But now, what are we? What has happened to the people of God? What relationship have the people of God been brought into? as the curtain of the temple is torn in two, as the temple itself is actually destroyed in 70 AD, yet the church of God remains on the earth, yet the gospel is preached. What are we? What does the Apostle Paul call us? You are temples of the living God. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As individuals, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As the gathered people of God, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Where is the holy place? It's where the saints meet. It's where the saints sit under the word of God. It's where the saints sing the praises of God. It's where the saints join themselves together in prayer. How many people have been saved? 
How many priests are there? Millions, 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 millions. Put it all together over history. That city of God descending from the heavens, it's big enough for millions of priests to go into, to burn incense, which is a picture of prayer. I don't want you to think I'm making it up, so let's have a look at something. I want you to turn to First Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in First Peter chapter 2 at verse 4. As you come to him, now here he's speaking of Jesus. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble because they did not, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. My friends, Luke has placed his gospel in biblical history and in human history. Luke has shown us at the very beginning what the state of humanity was. A man who was himself a sinner, though counted righteous before God, was allowed on certain occasions and at certain times to enter into the place which signified the very special presence of God. And no one else could. If you went in there apart from your appointment, apart from your ordaining by God, the penalty was death. People had a human mediator. They had a priest. There's a reason why Protestants don't call their ministers priests. There's a reason why we've rejected the idea of calling our ministers priests or father. Just uh, looking for a Bible reference here. We don't need a priest. We don't need someone to enter into the holy place on our behalf. The truth is, if we are in Christ, we live in that holy place. Our sins are forgiven and we have been made holy in the sight of God. Now, at this point, I'm just going to lay a little bit of a burden on us all. 
because if you um, stay at First Peter, you notice at the beginning in First Peter chapter two, Peter tells us that we should put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The fact that we're told our sins are forgiven, the fact that we've been called into Christ, the fact that we've been made a holy nation, the fact that we've been made priests, a royal priesthood, the fact that no man like us, right, there is a man, but like us, I'm not your priest, Joel is not your priest, you don't need a priest, you don't need anyone in this world today, here and now, who is human just as you are to be your priest. No one goes into into the presence of God on our behalf. The fact that we have this relationship does not actually mean, therefore, don't worry about your sins. It actually means that what we do when we sin as Christians is we're defiling a holy place. We've actually been adopted into the family of God. We've been made a royal priesthood. We've been made intercessors on behalf of humanity. What do priests do but pray for the people of God? And when we sin as priests, we're sinning in the holy place. So we should actually doubly fear doing such a thing. The truth is our consciences should be so tender that the thought of it pains us. The problem is that indwelling sin, that which has stained our very nature, dulls our conscience and it's too easy to put our conscience to sleep. I'm as guilty as this as any of you are. I'm not, um, I'm not trying to point at you and saying, I'm better than you. If you were like me, it wouldn't be happening to you. That's not what I'm saying. This is the war that we're in, my friends. Sin destroys us and sin should be pricking our conscience because we are a holy priesthood dwelling, as it were, in the, in the temple, in the innermost chamber, in the very presence of God. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at what Paul has to say, starting at verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We'll stop there. What did priests do? What was Zechariah doing? Okay. In terms of ceremony, he was burning incense. He was dressed appropriately. He did all things according to the commandment. He would have um, been ceremonially clean to undertake this duty. And he was to pray, to intercede for the people of God. He was acting as a priest for all those who were left outside. What does Paul say that we do? We pray, we make supplication, intercession and thanksgiving for all kinds of people, kings and all who are in high positions, 
that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of our God and sa- of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Zechariah, who was to become father of John the Baptist, Elizabeth would conceive and would bring into the world John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Zechariah was participating in a ministry that the Saviour, whom he had waited for for so long, was going to bring to an end. He's going to bring it to an end. All of this was to come to an end. The idea of a priest, the idea of being separated from God, the idea that a priest must pray for you, otherwise your own prayers will not be heard, was only a pointer. It was pointing to something. What did we read in Hebrews? What was it pointing to? The great high priest. The one who, when he offered a sacrifice, and he offered a blood sacrifice, it wasn't for his own sins. For he had not sinned. He was guilty of no sin. His blood was innocent blood, truly innocent blood, pure, perfect, righteous. In Acts twenty twenty eight, we're told that God purchased the church with his own blood. We could say, if we're thinking carefully, God's blood. Now, God himself cannot die. God is spirit. The son of God himself is spirit and cannot die, except that he is both now having become incarnate, both truly God and truly man. And that one who is truly man and is the son of God, he died for our sins. He became the great high priest. Now, who was the first high priest? Aaron. By right of birth, by right of birth, who were the high priests that followed after Aaron? his own children, his own family. The priesthood was filled by the sons of Aaron. We have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, son of man, son of God, son of David, human and divine, truly human, truly divine. And what are we by birth? What have we been made by birth? Now, we're not the Son of God with a capital S, but by birth, by rebirth, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we have been made sons of God. And so what have we inherited from our great high priest? We have inherited the priesthood of the people of God. We ourselves are the people who enter into the presence of God. We enter into the presence of God. It is a fearful thing and it is a blessed thing. It is an awesome thing. There should be a whole mixture of thoughts and feelings that come through our through our consciousness as we, the people of God, have entered into the presence of God. We should be a little like Elijah. We see the glory and the goodness of our Saviour. We see the righteousness of God. We see the purity and the holiness of God. And we should 
be convicted of sin. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of sinful lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of sinful lips. Even as we feel that, we should be rejoicing with the angels, shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. At the same time, as we're filled with fear and awe and being convicted of our sins, we should be being filled with love for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We should love him. The commandment of Scripture is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. That's how we should love the Lord Jesus. We don't get there, but we should feel the beginnings of it. You should know that the seed, which is the word of God, has been planted in our hearts. We should feel the beginnings of it, the knowing of it, the knowing that something great and wonderful is there for us in all eternity, the knowing that someone great and wonderful is there for us in all of eternity. Think of this, we who are Christians. We cannot think of a better person than the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot think of a better person than the Lord Jesus Christ. We're sinners. We've been derbed, I mean, daubed in the dirt of our sins. You know, our place is in the gutter. Our hearts, apart from God, they're just hollow, empty, dark places filled with all kinds of wickedness and evil. From before all time, before eternity, our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life and the eternally begotten Son of God, whom we know as the Lord Jesus, entered into covenant with his Father that he would redeem those people, those names, those people, people yet un- unborn but known by God and known to be sinners. And he entered into time on our behalf. Almighty, all-powerful, eternal. What did he have to gain? Well, I don't know that I'm such a great gift. (laughs) I don't know that gaining me as one of his followers is really um, that important. What did he have to gain? He gained the revelation of his glory. He gained the revelation of his love. God created creation with knowing, thinking beings in that creation in order to reveal his glory to and through that creation. I'll tell you something. Jesus loves himself. Jesus as God, the eternally begotten Son of God, loves himself with a perfect and righteous love. He knows who he is. He knows his own perfections. He knows the perfection of God. He loves himself, and there is no reason that he should not love himself. When we say here in Australia that someone loves themselves, it's an insult. It's a put-down. That guy loves himself. That guy's got tickets on himself. I can't stand him. I hate being around him. He talks about himself too much. 
But when someone who is actually truly perfect, holy and righteous speaks of himself and his perfection, holiness and righteousness, that's a different story. He's revealing his glory to us. He's revealing his beauty to us. He has revealed these things to us. Furthermore, in his humanity, he died in our place. Do you accept that we are worthy of death? Because we should accept it. Do you accept that if God were to enact justice, pure cosmic justice, he could hit us all with lightning resurrect us and hit us with lightning all over again and each time just keep sending us to hell for eternity, suffering, 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 and that would be cosmically just. That would be just on the scale of God's justice. But Jesus died on our behalf in order that God may pour out his mercy upon us and even his mercy is just. God is both just and the justifier of all who believe. And so the price for sin has been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my friends, when we think of Jesus, we cannot think of a better person. We cannot think of someone who is more worthy of our love. We cannot think high enough thoughts concerning himself. We can't get there. You know, it's possible to blaspheme. It's possible to ascribe humanity to divinity. And it's possible to ascribe divinity to humanity. People people idolise people. People talk about some people as though they're God. Some people talk about themselves as though they're God. It's actually a form of blasphemy. But it's not possible for Christians to think too highly of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's the thing, my friends. We live in his presence. There is no mediator. There is no priest. He himself is our priest. One day we'll come to meet him face to face. In person, we'll hear his voice. We can fall at his feet and we can touch his, we can touch his feet. He's our God. He's our savior. We can meet him face to face. Guess what? this one who is so wonderful that we can't think high enough thoughts of him, loves us. Loves us. Wants us in his presence for all eternity. You feel like a child, almost worthless and not a particularly good child at that? Guess what? little children like you and I, he died for us. He wants us. He loves us. He desires fellowship with us. We're not outside the temple praying in a multitude. We might be praying in a multitude, but you've got to understand, we're praying inside. We're we're further in than the high priest could ever go. Okay, the high priest who could only enter on certain days to make the sin offerings for the people. That was the height. That was the height of Old Testament, Old Covenant worship. Yet in the book of Hebrews, we're told that those things were real symbols of a real heavenly holy place. 
They were sanctified because God ordained them. God said, you build these things and you will have a place where you can worship. Yet they were copies of that which is in heaven. We're further up and further in than any priest of the old covenant priesthood ever got or could imagine getting. We're in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you read, the the Apostle Paul loves to say, in Christ, we who are in Christ, you who are in Christ, to the saints who are in Christ. Think of what he's saying. To the saints who by the grace of God have been drawn further up and further in than any high priest ever went. Remember, he's a Jew, Pharisee, student of the scriptures from a very early age. The Lord Jesus Christ, my friends, he's our saviour. He's our highest possible thought. We can't think of a better person whom we are, whom we love more. And he loves us. He loves us. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. He's never going to cast us off. He's our hope. He's our security. In crazy times, like the times in which we live, what have we got that can bring peace? What have we got that can bring us joy? We've got salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got a priesthood to fulfill, by the way. We're also, you know... We come into this holy of holies, this this heavenly temple. We come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We should be there with supplications and intercessions and thanksgiving. Praying. Praying. The people round about us. Praying for our nation. Praying concerning the strong delusion that has settled upon the people. And so, think of it. Luke places his gospel in world history. He places it in redemptive history. And he places it in the context of Judaism and the fact that the people, the mass of the people, were away from the presence of God. They were outside. They offered their prayers from outside. Something's going to change. And that's what the gospel is going to teach us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for that which we have learned from the Holy Scriptures here this day. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would encourage us by your word. Father, help us to be diligent in prayer. Help us to be faithful and obedient in these days. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.